0: Something is killing the children in Archer's Peak. The kids in a sleepy Wisconsin town have begun to disappear. Most never return, and those that do have terrible stories of creatures that live in the shadows. Their only hope is the arrival of a mysterious stranger who claims to be the only one who can see what the children see. Something is killing the children. The Eisner Award-nominated horror comic published by Boom Studios is returning next year. We're here to tell you a little bit about it. You can catch up now with Something is Killing the Children book one, which collects the entire Archer's Peak saga for the first time and is available now wherever books are sold. The first 15 issues will also be returning to comic book stores next year with exclusive new collectible covers painted by the iconic David Mack. The first of these slaughter packs will be available in January and collects issues number one through five. Visit your local comic book store to learn more.
1: Yeah, this book is a huge hit with readers and critics alike. It's won pretty much every comic book award ever. Mm. Uh, you mentioned Scott the Eisner. It's also won the Harvey and Ringo Awards. And as they tell us, it is now the perfect time to jump in because the brand new art kicks off in 2022. And something also to keep in mind is that Something is Killing the Children is being adapted over at Netflix by friend of the show, Mr. Mike Flanagan. At oh, the- Oh yeah, our buddy Mike—he's got like 18 plates spinning, and this is one of them. Yeah, for He's, God's uh, pred-
0: sakes, Flanagan, take a rest.
1: Yeah, leave some for the rest of the world. There's got to be other filmmakers that want, you know, some of these cool-sounding properties, right?
0: Well, with Mike at the helm, I'm fine with it, but but he does need a nap. We we must <laughs> we must see to it that Mike gets a nap at some point. All right. Um, Kate Siegel,
1: if you're listening, make Mike take a nap. Indeed. I also wanted to tell you about the good folks over at Horror Struck. Horror HorrorStruck is an independent podcast exploring the world of horror through the eyes of two best friends. We love friends in horror, don't we, Scott? We love friends, yes. And horror. And horror. And horror and friends together are the best. Uh, one of these friends is a horror expert and the other is a genre novice. Listen in weekly as they dissect all of your favorite horror classics and occasionally talk with some familiar faces such as Zach Guilford of Midnight Mass. Yet another Mike Flanagan connection. Good Lord. Come on, man. You can't be connected to everything. Uh, Award winning <laughs> horror author, Grady Hendrix, YouTuber and film critic, Amanda, the Jedi, and many more new episodes drop every single Wednesday. Now, normally I'd get territorial since the KingCast drops every Wednesday. And I thought we made it perfectly clear at the national meeting of podcasters that this was our special day, but I'll Mm -hmm, let it pass. It sounds mm -hmm. cool. It sounds like a cool podcast.
0: They can have this one. They can have this one last, but certainly not least. We've got to tell you a little bit about our corporate overlords over at Fangoria in 1979. The first issue of Fangoria was released into the world and it's been 40 years. And yet Fangoria is better than ever. Each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horrors past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say you do not want to miss a single page. So head on over to Fangoria.com to learn more and to subscribe. And while you're there... Make sure to enter the promo code Kingcast to save twenty five percent off your yearly subscription.
1: I think it's time to get on with that show, Scott. What do you think? <laughs> Hi,
2: my name is Stephen King. The ice
0: is gonna break.
1: Sometimes that is better.
0: Hello, and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler, and I'm Eric Vespi and we are your hosts. We are joined today by one of our favorite guests in the show's history. Uh, we have talked repeatedly about if this show had a Mount Rushmore of guests who would be on it, and today's guest would absolutely be front and center on that bad boy he is the creator of pushing daisies nbc's dearly departed hannibal and the future director of an adaption of stephen king's christine that is headed our way through the good folks at sony and blumhouse you love him you know him you're excited to have him back as much as we are ladies and gentlemen please welcome to the king cast stage again mr brian fuller brian how are you doing today
2: Hello, I'm good. Thank you for having me back. This is yes. uh, uh, a joy always to part, to have any sort of conversation with you guys.
0: I'm always excited to talk to you. And I would also like to point out that you are the only guest in the show's history where once we all get on the line to record an episode, there's usually at least about an hour of shit talking and, and uh, gossiping that goes on before we, <laughs> before we get on the air. So we've actually been talking for about an hour now. But before that... Super hyped to talk to you again. It's 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 been too long.
2: It's the it's the coppers gland conversation that we have <laughs> uh, before every uh, uh, cast.
0: The last time we had you on, I think it was around the point where uh, right, a year you ago. had thereabouts. You you came back for our anniversary special, uh, oh, where you know the time was very limited by intention. But uh, that was around the time I think that they announced uh, your take on. Christine that you'd been hired to to do this so it's so yeah it's now about a year later Uh, where can you what can you tell us about where Christine is at right now
2: the script for Christine has been sent to Stephen King along with illustrations and uh, storyboards uh, a couple of great sequences you know buddy Reprican's, uh last bow and uh, <laughs> will darnell's confrontation with Christine and so we're we, we, we sent that Christmas present to Stephen King and uh, hopefully we'll be getting feedback in the new year uh, but so you uh,
0: are you nervous about that by the way
2: um you know I I Feel like it's a very faithful adaptation of the book, and mm-hmm. the, the book, you know, was in front of me the entire time I was writing the script. Even when, you know, there there have been, uh, you know, minor departures or uh, the spanxing of a uh, you know nearly six hundred uh, page <laughs> <space> <laughs> into uh, a, a hundred page script, and so that was. A lot of fun, because initially I wrote a 122-page script, and Blumhouse was like, get it in under 100. And I was like, I will rise to that challenge. And (laughs) uh, it was a lot of fun. I think it made it a a better script, a tighter script. And uh, now, hopefully, uh, Stephen King will see how fidelitous it is as an adaptation and sign off, and then we move forward.
0: You used that word before. You could just say faithful, but you yes. go with Fidelitas. It's a, it's a classy move. I got to say. <laughs> well,
2: you can only use faithful so many times.
0: <laughs> True. King fans have read Christine. They've seen the John Carpenter version. I'm curious about what part of yourself you've woven into this script mm-hmm. that, that might set it apart from this earlier adaptation.
2: I love the Carpenter film. And, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I, don't think it's, it's uh necessary, like it, it owes a lot to the James Brolin movie, The Car, in terms mm. of it's just an evil car. And it does uh, what evil cars do, which is run over people and or taunt them at cemeteries or drive through their house while they're on the phone. There's so many layers. I I feel like Carpenter's movie is a cookie and the Stephen King book is a tiramisu. So mm-hmm. it has more layers of cream and chocolate and cakey goodness. Um but the cookie's still delicious, but it's a it's a different kind of dessert experience. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this is much more beholden to the, the concept of, of the overlook on wheels or, you know, the, mm-hmm. the vampiric relationship, uh, between, uh, the car and Arnie and, and certainly Roland Bay has a lot to do in the story and he wasn't even a character in the John Carpenter movie. So I think right. all of those things, for me, were rationale and why we needed a new adaptation of Christine because so much of the book never made it on screen
1: previously. Right. Ever since that was announced, we there's not a week that goes by where somebody doesn't show up on our Twitter mentions. Uh like usually not Talking to us, but like adding us and telling people who maybe you're discussing. Oh, yeah, they're making a new Christine going. You need to listen to Brian Fuller's KingCast episode about it. Uh, like people love that episode. They they're so I can't tell you how excited at least the people listening to our show are about you doing it. I think there specifically in, because you went so in depth and, uh, you know, seem to show a great understanding of, of uh, you know, what that book should be.
0: I was going to say, like around the time that announcement got made, there were a lot of people giving us like the credit for that coming together because of that episode, which I think is not fair. I think it's fair.
2: I think it's totally fair because that was definitely the spark. Vincenzo Natale, uh, who I know has been a guest on the Mm. cast. He listened to it and he, he called me and was like, you know, have you ever thought about doing an adaptation of Christine? I was like, well, I'd love to. And he's like, well, do you want me to check it out for you? And so really it was the pod it was Vincenzo Natale listening to the podcast, kind of pressing the agenda forward in terms of a new adaptation. And that's really what got the ball rolling. So you you were You were like it would not have happened if it weren't for the podcast.
0: All right, I take it back. I'm taking full credit for this. <laughs>
1: you should, you should. Exec
0: producer credits when (laughs) (laughs) there is, I understand that it's still being finalized right now. Maybe some things will change between the version of the script you have now. And once it ultimately hits screens, but uh, is there anything you can tell us about it that people don't know yet that you might be interested in, you know, getting out in the open?
2: Uh, You know, I'm, I'm not sure what it is. I had, I had a really fun conversation with Clive Barker, uh hmm.
1: like he did he didn't write Christine, by the way. He did not write Christine, <laughs> but he's a fan
2: of the book and, and a
1: okay. fan of Stephen
2: King, of course. And you know, there's that famous Stephen King quote, I have seen the future of horror, and his name is, is Clive Barker, yes. uh, which really was the gateway for a lot of us to discover. Uh uh-huh. it was it was it was a beautiful endorsement. Totally. Um, and You know, in the conversation with Clive, who, you know, watched Hannibal and sort of appreciated the uh, unusual sex scenes that we had on the show. And, you know, to navigate the uh, standards and practices and 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 his uh, classic Clive. Classic Clive, he was very complimentary, and he essentially said you know that he was glad I was involved in the adaptation, uh, because I was clearly connected to my own sexuality and sexual expression. And please just make it clear that he's fucking the car.
0: Are we going to see penetration of the car in your? Well,
2: version? I mean, like every time you get into a car, you're penetrating the
0: car. So fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> Checkmate, Scott. Yeah, he was right there with that one, dude. <laughs> yes,
2: and there's even a great line from uh, Roland LeBay in the book where he talks about being inside the car, and every time you're inside the car, and how warm and safe and and uh, <laughs> secure you'll be, and you'll never be happier than when you are uh, inside. Christine there's so much going on in terms of you know sexual awakening metaphors simply mm-hmm.
1: like, and it's it's an incredibly horny book no question
2: it's super no horny question. and there's you know I think the in our last conversation uh, we talked about sort of lee the limitations of lee as a as the prettiest girl in school who cried a lot and was was stressed out that's probably the biggest change in, in the script is sort of modernizing Lee as a, a three-dimensional character. And I don't think I even write about her uh, physical beauty in, in terms of, of mm. the the characterization. Um, she's, just, she's just great for other reasons.
0: Well speaking uh, of modernizing it, you have you have kept it period, yes.
2: Yes, yes, it's, uh, it's 78 into 79 and uh, as the book uh, is. And so, so far that's all, that's all intact. And, um, we'll see, you know, knock on wood, we make this working with the storyboard artist, uh, Dan Milligan and the illustrator, Sam Mishlap. They've just started to, help me visualize the world in a way that I'm, I'm excited for people to see
0: it. Right on. Very excited to see it. We understand you're still, it's still being worked on. So there's no sense in shotgunning more questions at you. I'm sure we'll have uh, much more to talk about as this, uh, as this situation unfolds. Uh, it, it, we are, go ahead.
2: Oh, I, I was going to say it's an interesting compare and contrast. Uh, you know, cause I think one of the things that I love about Stephen King is his ability to capture the adolescent experience and his his best protagonists are adolescents in some way and there's something there's an interesting compare and contrast to be had between jack sawyer and arnie cunningham in complete you know in completely different ways because jack even though he's of the age where testicles have dropped and he would be sexualized and probably masturbating every time that he's alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not really part of the story as much as it is Christine. Uh, the, the horny and implicitness of the, mm. the, the romance between all of you know all the various triangles that are happening in Christine are much more pronounced. And it is about, puberty like active puberty and pubescence Mm -hmm. whereas jack is sort of emerging from prepubescence into a duality of worlds. That is an interesting metaphor for that stage of development for a young man, because the twinning aspect, the dual worlds you're emerging from, you know, your prepubescent adolescence into a duality of adulthood that involves the sexual self. So it's interesting to look at both the talisman and christine as adolescent sexual expressions at different points of the spectrum so uh how's that for a transition
1: (laughs) perfect (laughs) bizarre and weird and everything i would hope (laughs) 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 while you're here but uh can we get you to say
0: my version of christine will be horny as hell in the in the attempt to generate a headline
1: uh,
2: my version. Of, uh, the, I'll say our version because it's such a. It's always a collective experience. Uh, it's always weird to say my or I when you're talking about fair, it fair, fair. Because it's a team thing. So our version is going to be horny as hell. <laughs>
0: Perfect. Our Let's version. Aggregate a, that y-
1: motherfuckers. Y- 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 yes. Yet another King exclusive. <laughs> <Yes>.
0: <laughs> so the book we're we're here to discuss today is The Talisman. Um, yes. Stephen King. Peter Straub. Not Clive collab- Barker. Yes, not Clyde Barker collaborated <laughs> on this. There was there was talk of you doing the Mist a while back, and you switched gears to the Talisman. I'm curious why this was the next title on your list after the Mist.
2: Well, I I, I think because it hits on all you know. I love metaphor and allegory and all of those thematic kind of tools that we have as storytellers, and I feel like this book because. Also, you know, Mark Petrie is one of my favorite adolescent uh, protagonists, mm-hmm. in Stephen King's work, you know, from *Salem's Lot*. Right. And then, you know, there's Arnie Cunningham and 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 Jack Sawyer. You know, so it really like these three young men, and in, in a strange way, like the, the kids in *It*. There were so mm-hmm. there were so many of them, and so uh, and their stories were very evenly handed that. Uh, They popped as a group, but they didn't necessarily pop for me individually Mm -hmm. in terms of like, I really uh, identified with Richie more than the other kids or anything like that. But because of the sort of singular storytelling um, that you have or single point of view, rather, or uh, limited points of view, uh, Mm -hmm. because Christine goes between Arnie and Dennis and then omniscient narrator. And this, I love that it was Jack's story. And I love that it is this kid's journey that starts out very adult in a way he's dealing with death and he's being gaslit by his mother about her Mm -hmm. health, which is, it was really kind of touching and, and the trauma of that was coming off the page for me of this kid who's worrying about his mom. His mom says she's fine, but everything in the world is telling him that his mom is actually dying and she's about to lose him. So there's this grand wish fulfillment of of a child who in normal circumstances would be powerless to affect any change in his mother's fate with, with dying of cancer. And, and yet because of the, the wonder of storytelling, he gets to save the day. And there's something about, giving power to the powerless in a narrative that is very inspiring. So mm. I always found the talisman, a, a really inspiring story and it, it perhaps doesn't have some of like the dead zone is another, mm. uh, favorite. And I would argue it may not be my, my absolute favorite King book, but I think it's one of his best. It's sort of the Jackie Brown,
0: Mm -hmm. uh, uh, (laughs)
2: Stephen King's work because it's uncharacteristic (laughs) and uh, it, it doesn't use as many of the, I say crutches with absolute respect Um, but it is a a truly human story that doesn't have the usual bells and whistles of fantasy and horror applied to it. It is primarily a human story first. Hmm. And I, and I kind of feel that with Jack Sawyer, like even though it gets into really dynamic, phantasmagorical, Uh, aspects of the narrative with werewolves and parallel worlds uh, and you know good queens and evil kings etc um there's something like it starts out so firmly in a human story of a kid struggling with uh becoming an orphan like the the Mm -hmm. and, and losing your last parent in a way that actually emotionally grounds the rest of the story so they can go to bonkersville and wonderland. And because we spend so much time with Jack at the beginning, uh, struggling with this very relatable human thing. um, I I think that's just a a wonderful access point.
1: Hmm. You Hmm. know, it's really interesting that you mentioned that because I had this feeling in the back of my mind while revisiting this, that the talisman was coming off to me as the proto kind of Harry Potter. Yes. Here. Yes. And it's in, it, it's almost exactly the same where it opens up in kind of a drab real world. This is new England. Uh, with, I think it's new Hampshire, right? That, that yeah. it mm-hmm. starts off in. And, uh, you know, and the, like the description of this coastal thing, it's like off season. So it's cold and it's gray and it's abandoned. And like, that's just kind of the, the feeling you get, you know, at the beginning of the Harry Potter story, where it's this, this child goes on an adventure realizing that he's got magic in him essentially. Now, obviously that's completely different journeys, but the, in terms of feel and tone, like, you know what you said about about it starting so human and small and real and and relatable and you know kind of scary and, and helpless the f- the helplessness that you feel reading that that beginning, uh, like it really does kind of hammer home that feeling I I had while while revisiting this that it was kind of like the the I
0: don't know the the railroad
1: you know track that was being built. The, for the train that would come later, yeah.
0: For listeners who haven't read the book already, Eric, would you be willing to throw out a little little synopsis action for the people at home?
1: I think uh, Brian has, has uh, set the table a little bit by talking about mm-hmm. Jack Sawyer as this young protagonist. I think he's, what, 12 in oh, this? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, he's this... Kid who's not a a kid anymore. He's not yet a man. It's kind of that that perfect Stand By Me ish, you know, era for the body ish era that that King writes so well. Um, and the era uh, and that he,
0: Britney Spears
1: sang about, <laughs> <So> beautiful. <laughs> yeah. He has a great relationship with his mom, who is a B movie actress, and like he does
2: uh, Wes Myers move.
1: Yes. Yeah. 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 She's, uh, she's written very well. She's like a very loving and relatable person. Like you wish that this person was your mom, um, uh, but she's sick and she's slowly dying. And you find out that, that there's a quest that he can go on. He's sent on a quest by this mysterious uh, janitor, I think, who uh, who works at a nearby amusement park named Speedy Parker. And uh, essentially says, hey, guess what? You're kind of magic. You can flip between this world and a uh, um, a world next door that they call the territories. And what exists in our world has a a mirror image in the other almost exclusively. Like that's like, that's everybody who exists in our world exists in the other world. Uh, But there are rare cases where somebody dies in one world and doesn't die in the other. And those people uh, essentially have free access to flip back and forth. And so you find out that Jack is one of these people and he goes on a quest to save his mother in his world. And in the other world, it's the queen of the territories who was, who was also dying. And, uh, if he can retrieve a talisman on the opposite coast and, and bring it back, he can save both. Mm-hmm. So that, that is the overall, Uh, story of this is him on that journey so it's it's kind of hitting a lot of the Stephen King uh, what Brian would have called crutches a a second ago Uh, but it's a young protagonist it's on this journey so you got the kind of that stand feel you know when they're just walking across across country and you got yeah, a little dark tower feel like you know rereading that i reread this and both drawing of the three and the wastelands kind of close together and i think that they king wrote this around the time he was writing that and there's a lot of jake chambers in in jack sawyer as well like they they're both described as being you know kind of looking the same and i don't know there's there's a there's a lot of similarities between them so that's kind of the the, the basic uh, rundown of it, but th- there's so much to get into because there's so many adventures and, and shit that he gets into along the way. Well, well
2: And as, as you were saying that, it occurred to me uh, that really we get, we get this spectrum of age between the, the protagonists of, of Stephen King's work, which, you know, going back to Danny Torrance, who mm. is, is way prepubescent and yeah. kind of discovering his special ability. Mark Petrie uh, like, is a little bit older, um, but you, like having Jack Sawyer and uh, the character in the Dark Tower series, mm-hmm. yeah, they're Jake. All, Jake, they're all... They're all incremental, you know, advancements through pubescence, beyond pubescence in a way that, that King uniquely captures that Mm -hmm. it's all about being a young person trying to find your identity in some way. So that's the thing that he, he continually taps into for his young male adolescent characters that I find interesting to do a chart of of how they progress what their age ranges are and what kind of pivotal moments they're hitting in their story and when they go good and when they go bad it's it, it's really like looking at his work as a whole it is about growing up
1: yeah, Charlie McGee and Firestarter, a uh, Carrie, Carrie White. I, she's uh, in high school. She's like sixteen, I think, but she has her first period. I mean, he, is, you know, in yeah. that story, Losers Club. So, I in mean, it. I think that that bridge between, I mean, well, that's such is between being a child and being an adult uh, is fascinating to him in in particular. But I think that there is something just really interesting in gray area in there where you're not there's like a period a couple years where you're not either right you're this other thing your voice is different you know you're you're growing hair you're changing but you're not an adult you're not a kid it's not even you're this weird anomaly you know you don't sound like a kid you don't sound like an adult you know for like 18 months you you are this whole other species and i think that he's just very fascinated by that era either directly leading up to it or right after it that seems to be where so many of uh, of his works are, are focused
2: well all of his characters are at this point in their development where critical thinking is low and absorption is high so mm. everybody is trying to go on a a wonderful journey
0: mm, sure that's, that's my, well, that's my, that's like my, my prevailing sensation when reading this novel. You know, it is exciting to read when you're a kid because it's these kids going on a, a scary adventure, you know, and they're, they're ultimately conquering this evil thing. And, and all of that is very cool. But the Talisman, you're flipping between worlds, you're encountering werewolves, you're, you know, outsmarting and ultimately knocking these, these evil pieces off the board on your way to completing an epic quest. Like, mm-hmm. like I didn't, I didn't read the talisman until I was, fuck, I must've been the late teens or something. But if you had given me this book when I was about 12, buddy, I would have lost my shit. Like this mm-hmm. is, this is pitch perfect. Exactly. The sort of thing I I would have right. loved to, have, to have read at that age. Um, I was
2: 14 when I read it. And hmm. I read I read it in hardback from the library, and so it like, it, and I was this because it came out in eighty four, but was sort of written in like eighty eighty or taking place in eighty eighty one because the character was born in sixty nine and was twelve years old, and I was born hmm. in sixty nine, so I was like, it me like this is <laughs> <laughs> right, right.
1: yeah. No, I, I I was about twelve, I think. I read this and, and and it impacted me. Like I read this around the time I was reading Dark Tower, and it. And all these things where I had these entry points in, like it, it this representation matters. It really does, even on, on on that level. You know, it was way easier for me to get invested as a young reader, uh, for these stories that had you know young protagonists in them. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I I don't want to shit talk this this novel at all because it means a lot to me but i i do have to admit when i reread it now it didn't have the same effect it did on me um when i was a kid uh i I've, i felt it was a little bit flabbier than i remembered it being um the moments that work in it though are still so damn good and uh you know i again i don't want to bring bring it down by talking about how it doesn't hold up but uh because i think it does hold up it's just not the same experience it is a little um, more
0: episodic than i
1: remember and, yeah, and
2: that's like as I was rereading it for this, I was like, "This is a great miniseries because mm. that's an episode." Like the the, yeah. the school, you know, sequence is an episode. right, road, and you know the the
1: sunlight gardener home is 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 like a two or three episode arc, and yeah, yeah Oakley like, Tap
0: is another couple yeah. of episodes. You right. know, right. Uh, Although and, I imagine that would be the like, you know, there's been so many attempts to make this over the years as a feature film, which is just. Just insane. I guess I guess we should get that bit of trivia out of the way right now. Like Steven Spielberg um, read the galleys of this when before it came out and purchased the rights to it in perpetuity, which means that ever since then, since like 84 or so, at various intervals, uh, Spielberg was trying to get this off the ground. I think first he wanted to do it, and then he was passing it to other directors and seeing if they could crack it. They had not cracked it. Now now the um, situation is that he's executive producing it along with the the Duffer brothers for uh, for a Netflix series. They're not actually, um, I imagine they'll direct a few episodes, but they're not actually show running it. They're bringing mm-hmm. in a guy yeah. from Stranger Things. I could name him if this tab on my fucking computer would open. <laughs> <laughs> it's right. just sitting here. I'm trying to stretch this out, but no, okay.
1: Um, I've read, I've and I. You're right. Th- this has been something that's been going on, and I have a theory that because uh, Stephen King is notorious with his rights right now, where it's like he seems to be very approachable and willing to give rights to most things to people, but it's all it always, always, always is on a limited basis, and if you don't make something in a year. Then and maybe Brian, this is your interaction with him while securing the rights for Christine. But like my understanding is that it's great. You go for it. Go with God. If you make it, you make it. I'm happy for you. But if not, I get them shits back real quick, you know, and I my theory is that it all sprung from this because he gave the rights mm-hmm. to the talisman to Spielberg, as he said, in perpetuity. And uh, and it's just never happened. It's ne- and it's something that is so cinematic. It's such a cinematic book. It for sure. I feel like if he had his his uh, kind of tightness, his Scroogeness that he has, you know, with his uh, rights right now, uh, if he if he retained that with Talisman, we would have seen an adaptation of this by now. Yeah,
2: yeah. and I and I do think it, it it needed television to evolve to the point where people could see this as a limited series, as opposed mm-hmm. to trying to squeeze it into a movie because there's just so many moves to it and so many chapters that yeah, you know working in television as long as I have and rereading it. I'm like, that's episode two, that's episode three, that's episode four. And it was, it really spoke to a, a, a chapter uh, hmm. delineation and in, in the in the narrative. So I was excited that it was going to be, or is going to be a limited series. Cause I think that, that it certainly feels designed for that and feels like that's the mm-hmm. optimum presentation for it. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, I was, I was looking at just in terms of, uh, you know, cause this is so much about puberty for me, like reading this mm-hmm. book and, you know, being in puberty when I read it and for the first time and looking at, at the uh, just the evolvement from uh jack's kind of uh peers in in the story where going into puberty you feel like your body's changing you're going through a transformation everything feels fluid and weird and mysterious and horny and he meets a werewolf friend that yep. kind of represents classically the divide between the libidinous self and the kind of sober sane self. And what a great metaphor for a 12 year old character to meet a 16 year old kind of mm-hmm. orny, hairy, uh, wild guy that is actually True and sweet <laughs> and and lovely and like when I read it as a kid, I got really horny when Jack met. <laughs> like, this is like I need a werewolf friend that's going to show me how hair grows on my body. I was, I was struggling for ways to like force a queer agenda on this.
0: I was wondering uh, how you were going to do that on this title.
2: <laughs> well, like, you know, Cause I think this, this story has, you know, positive and negative queer representations. Uncle Tommy sort of reads as a queer mm-hmm. character, but not necessarily explicitly. Am I like, I, or did they say it explicitly or did I just want him to be queer? No, I
0: think, a- think that's the implication.
2: Yeah. But then also, uh, you know, he's warned about sissies who like to touch boys and like, that's sort of a, a, common thing that you would you would run across is, as Speedy Parker warns him as he's crossing town, like, beware of the sissies or we're gonna touch you. And then he meets this uh, wild child kind of 16 year old werewolf character that you know if you're 12 and you're 16 you're sort of going like oh you're like balls are bigger than mine and you're hairier than i am and there's an awareness of the path that lays ahead of you in your journey to manhood in some way or sexuality and so i thought that was i'm like curious How, like, why did they choose a werewolf for this? Like, is it just me reading into all of this sort of, you know, horny sexuality of, you know, your repressed libidinous self? And that's the, that's his companion for a great part of the story. And then later he meets, you know, morgan's son richard who's a regular kid like him so it's almost like he needed to go through this phase of of pubescence where he is you know more beast-like in his relationship with his you know primal self and then gets to back to a truer version of him or you know a A closer and, and, uh, a more human child who's struggling with his own parental dynamics as his non-literal twinner. Like, Jack has twinners throughout the series, even though his, his twinner died as a child. Jack has twinners, you know, in, in the characters that accompany him through these journeys. So the, this whole twinning aspect of it is, oh, you know, it's hard not to see different versions of yourself manifesting and for Jack in metaphor for, you know, his journey to adulthood and responsibility.
0: It's Love also it. a lot about child abuse.
2: Yes. Mm. Everybody's looking to abuse child.
0: Oh my mm. God. They can't get enough of it. No. Every other character in this story is like is trying to do some mean or fucking wrong shit to a kid, which <laughs> yeah. you know, um, whip him
1: or make him slaves or try to touch him in cars.
0: Yeah. Right, right. Him, him working at the like him working at the Oatley tap and like using a, a a fucking dolly to carry around kegs of beer. And I'm thinking, like, I was a bartender as a full grown man. Those things are not fucking light, dude. Right? They're like over a hundred pounds a piece. You know, to lift one of those up onto a shelf. And I'm trying to imagine like a 12-year-old doing it. And I, I think it's just fucking impossible. The thing would weigh as much as Jack, if not more so. Anyway, that doesn't matter. Um, but <laughs> but yeah, he's he's more or less enslaved at the Oatley Tap, and then then he's he's dodging these full grown adults that are, are trying to kill him in the territories, and then he ends up in the, the sunlight gardener home, which to me is like the most memorable sequence in this entire book mm-hmm. you do know you want to
1: describe do you want to describe what that is in case people haven't read the, the book
0: yeah Jack ends up through a series of extenuating circumstances at uh, a, a, a home co- it's is it the sunlight gardener home is that the name of yeah it? and it is essentially like a private slash religious sort of school that's you know for
1: like pit- juvenile delinquents kind of yeah
0: for bad boys. Yeah. Um, out, you know, in a position quite literally in the middle of a field, you know, sort of separated from the rest of the world. And I think that I think one of the reasons that uh, that part of it stuck with me so much is because I read this one the, for the first time when I was at military school. You know, mm. and there were a lot of fucking parallels to draw there. You know, there, it, you know, we weren't getting locked in boxes like Wolf does out in the middle of a. Uh, a, f- a field with a beating sun raining down upon it, but you know, <laughs> yeah, straight up Django Unchained, yeah. But we did, <laughs> box you know, there. there was there was shit along those lines that probably wouldn't fly today, and um, that element of it really fucked me up, and yeah. I I found something very real about the way that King and Straub portrayed the the culture of this place and how there's once once you like isolate a bunch of boys like this, you know, it's that Lord of the flies thing, right? Mm. You know, once, right. once you've been separated like that, and if you're overseen by adults who are maybe a little, uh, shady on their own, like you are fucked, man, you are, you are building a powder keg because it's the, 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 the social dynamics of that, the, the politics of it, the, the, w- the way it operates are v- extremely volatile. With, with young boys at that age, you know, you're going into puberty, you're obsessing over your masculinity, you're, you're horny as fuck and you have nowhere to put it. That's all very big shit. And things go completely sideways at the, the sunlight gardener home. Um, virtually everyone <laughs> gets slaughtered. It's, it's wolf's big moment. I think that's where he dies, right? right? He does. Yeah. You um, know, after
2: saving the day, you know, there's yeah. yes.
0: Yeah. And he, he wipes out a number of those motherfuckers on his way out which is really cool but uh yeah he, t- he
2: kills a bunch of kids he kills the the <laughs> prefects you mm-hmm. know they're- but
0: don't worry
1: almost all the kids deserved it so yeah yeah they're, they're, they're all bad. fucking they, dicks fuck them dude fuck all of them
0: you know yeah. but but um that's man that's a that's a rough character death too because at this point like wolf is really jack's only friend it's interesting your read on it versus uh brian versus uh the intention I was reading some interviews today with uh, Peter Straub and King about this book and how they collaborated on it, how it was written, blah, 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 blah. And Straub said at one point that um, Mark Twain was very much on their mind while they were writing this and that the relationship between Wolf and Jack was intended to be like almost a Huckleberry Finn thing. And that's that I find really interesting.
2: That's apparent though. I mean, like Jack Sawyer, Jack and the Beanstalk, Tom Sawyer, it feels like right, right. off the bat, they're saying, these are Americana protagonists yes. of yes. a certain age. Uh, I mean, even though Jack and the Beanstalk is not an American story. Um, there's certainly uh, Jack as the name of a protagonist that goes into a fantastical world, and the adventures of Tom Sawyer. Like they're they're telling you right from the get go. Here's sort of the pedigree of the the types of stories that were
0: inspired. Right. Yeah, all of that is why uh, that that sequence looms very large for me. That it's, and- my,
2: it's my favorite, and in, in the book as well, because a he gets to go you know, completely transform into a werewolf. And then it's also uh, like that. The lesson for Jack is that, you know, if you lose control, you, mm-hmm. you lose more than just control. You'll lose mm-hmm. your life. And, right. and that's sort of the, the, that's always been the, the werewolf uh, analogy is mm-hmm. that how do you, yeah. how do you keep the beast at bay when there's so many things inviting it out to play. But it's all it's also you get a, a a massive werewolf attack in a private you know school uh filled with assholes that you want to die. So <laughs> it's incredibly satisfying. And that's like that that'll be my favorite episode of the mini series. Uh, <laughs> and
1: that and that's the the sequence that has been like routinely dropped from every attempt to make this right. Uh, I've would read have probably two or three scripts uh over the years, uh, Richard Lagravenese wrote wrote a draft in the early 90s. I read an abysmal Aaron Kruger uh, attempt at it, like in the late <laughs> 90s, early aughts. And they, they always, always, always skip over the sunlight gardener home. And I, I understand why on a narrative level. Why? Uh, be- Well, because it's kind of an island uh, amongst itself. Obviously, it has a character death in it that impacts things. But if you just snip it out uh, from a plot level, you can miss one beat of of a journey and he still gets to his destination. My my if Uh, I
0: were adapting it, my approach would be to drop the Oatly tap shit and roll whatever you needed to into that into the sunlight gardener sequence.
1: Oh yeah. The sunlight gardener. Yeah. It's school. the thing you, you can't make this and not make that. Like that's right. my opinion. Like that, that is the reason to make the talisman is to have that set piece in it.
0: Yes, I agree. I can see how so, it, it's a hurdle. Certainly. Right. And I, can't,
2: I think it's, I think it's, it's, that is, it's so yummy and delicious and it's a well, uh, drawn and executed sequence
0: that, but you're uh, Brian Fuller. You know what I mean? Like, of course you're gonna feel that way. I I can imagine why most people would probably. I can imagine why Spielberg himself might be fine with losing it, right?
2: Oh no, I'm I'm doing the Daryl Hannah tantrum on the floor, uh, <laughs> like before I would let that go.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. For sure, it's um, integral to 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 Jack's journey. But I I, I can mm-hmm. see like why no one would want to. Touch it, and then conveniently blame it on something else when it's really like you're fucking. You're gonna have to get a bunch of preteen boys in a place and uh, abuse the shit out of them on screen for a while, and it's got to get. And then really they gotta nasty. abuse the shit out
1: of each other, yeah.
0: And then <laughs> it's gonna I, end in a fucking bloodbath where all these kids get slaughtered. Like, yeah, they're, they're gonna leave that alone. I don't agree with it, but I understand it.
2: I get the note of the Oatly sequence playing with a lot of the similar vocabulary at the garden. Yeah, totally. Has. Totally. Um, but I, I mean, hopefully if they're doing this as a miniseries, right. The the, the Duffer
0: brothers are doing it, right? Yeah. And yeah. So- the, the guy show running it by the name, by the way, is named uh, Curtis Gwynn. He's a, a former writer, mm-hmm. exec producer on stranger things. And he's going to be the writer and, showrunner i imagine they'll have a writer's room any relation to fred <laughs> yeah uh different spelling oh mm.
1: but but is his main accent as good
0: <laughs> have not talked that's to him recently i don't know well um, i think
1: that's something that we should probably address here is that and maybe you guys feel differently but for me the reason why the sunlight gardener sequence works so well for me is Wolf is, I think, my favorite character in this book. Yes, um, absolutely. I, I, and, no question. And I love, uh, I love, and I love him because he is both the sweetest character and the most dangerous character mm-hmm. at the same time. And something that that uh, I was pleasantly surprised about, just not to be a downer on, like, oh, it wasn't as good as I remembered it. You know, on that angle is one that sequence that was a very pleasant surprise in this revisit was the scene. Uh, where Wolf locks Jack away during his transformation to protect the herd. That and is to me- so
0: fucking good. It is in the shed one or of whatever. The
1: scariest fucking yeah, because he's locked in the shed and like there's enough light, you know, that's going through the crack at the bottom of the door where he sees like the fucking werewolf feet, and you hear the full wolf. Because the way the the wolf transformation stuff happens is it's a gradual thing. It's kind of, I mean, if you want to talk about like the adolescent, you know, angle here, you know, it's like the full flow, right? This right. is the mm-hmm. the fullness of the, of the 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 period here, and that's when. Wolf is the most transformed physically. It's where he's, he's the most bloodthirsty. It, it's where he, you know, quote unquote, the herd is in danger um, because in the territories, wolves are almost exclusively shepherds. And at this point, uh, Wolf has lost his his flock in uh, a and, and small part, thanks to Jack kind of pulling him into his danger, by the way. Um, and uh, and Jack becomes Wolf's herd. It's it, what he's there to to do is to protect this kid and uh and so he locks him away while he's fully werewolfed out and there's a sequence where jack is in the dark like alone for like three days as this is happening and here's wolf coming you know coming back at night and and like essentially having a golem almost conversation debating yes. about yes wanting to eat him and will you know and uh and there's a great mythology behind this too because you know the more sane wolf when he's not in his moon lust is uh uh, like talks about how any wolf that hurts the, the herd is damned forever. Mm-hmm. Like and and all this stuff. And so there's like, I, I love Wolf, you know, he, and this is where he gets his, like his moment to shine, to be the rescuer, you know, to be, to use his, his anger and his meanness to save the herd and thus save his, his own soul, you know, in his eyes. And like, I, it's a, it's a great thing. And so I, I just wanted this to be the time where we can talk about Wolf here.
2: He's one of my favorite characters in any uh, King book. A because he's a werewolf, and I love werewolves. Yeah, and right. and he's also that that special breed of werewolf that is you know aware and and has a a kind of acceptance of of who he is. He's not he's not quite Eddie Quist in his. Right. Uh, Uh, perversion of it but he is somebody who accepts the nature of who he is which is also like a wonderful queer metaphor for a character who understands Mm -hmm. you know that they are different and uh, have different desires and have a whole different identity Uh, so i projected a lot onto wolf as a character and also as somebody who like you know I was I was in between the ages of both of those boys, and right. there I found their relationship to be uh, ro- like a bit romantic.
0: Mm-hmm. Come on!
2: Well, in, in, <laughs> in terms of the you know, when you look at Stand by Me now, and you see the dynamics between River Phoenix and Will Wheaton, mm-hmm. there is such a a loving between these two characters that, tenderness. Yeah. Uh, yeah tenderness is a great word uh to to apply to it that you can't help but think like oh i i wish that they had somebody in their lives that could be their everyone that uh with the quality of intimacy that they're getting from this person. Mm-hmm. And it felt like there was an honesty between Jack and Wolf, like, w- w- you know, warts and all or hair and all in terms of understanding each of their roles in the adventure, even though, you know, Wolf is sort of like set up for you to love and then to die heroically. And is that kind of hashtag man pain character mm-hmm. that you um, kind of Except is going to uh, get you to cry when they die, and mm-hmm. and and I did. As a queer reader, reading that at the time, I projected a certain romance and intimacy onto Jack and Wolf because I didn't have any better examples of
1: it. Hmm. Hmm. I can see that. There's also something where Wolf makes Jack a better person. Yes, because Jack is so myopic at this point, where he, he's focused solely on saving his mother at all costs, fuck everybody else almost. And he's kind of a dickhead to Wolf. Like I forgot how much like Jack tears him down and because he, he gets frustrated, Wolf like in our world as what you would imagine would be if there was an actual walking kind of Wolf boy around, Uh, you know, the smells in our world get to him and freak him out. You know, it, it's almost like he's, he's walking with a a friend or a brother or a boyfriend or whatever like some and somebody who's close to him that he has love for but you know is also spends almost all of his time frustrated with because they're acting out. Maybe it's a social disability or, right. you know, or, or a mental, mental, you know, handicap or something, but there's something where they love this person and they can tell that this, they love this person, but they also are fed up with this person, like almost from the get go. And I forgot how much she fucking snaps at Wolf and tears him down a lot. Like it, that was a kind of a shock going back. Cause I had no memory of that. And I read this book easily two or three times through, throughout my teen years. And I had no memory of, Of uh, that relationship being as uh, uh, strained as it was and and Jack being as much of an asshole (laughs) as he was towards this person.
2: Yeah, he, like, I mean, the definitely like, there's so many interesting kind of tentpole elements where, like, looking at, you know, M-O-O, Moon, you know, Moon from
1: from, uh, The The Stand. Right here and now. Yeah, Yeah, Tom Cullen and, you know, and uh, Wolf having you know his right here and now yeah he has his own MOON yeah
2: yeah there's there's certain uh you know and and Speedy is another you know version of uh you know from the shining
1: yeah Dick Halloran. Um, yeah
2: yeah there's 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 certain aspects of it where you get the kind of familiar characterizations from uh, a king story, but they are different enough that they still feel like individuals. Speedy is not Dick Halloran, uh, but they certainly have similarities in terms of being a, a magical black male character that is an entryway into a world that right. the young white protagonist needs needs a shepherd of sorts. So right. you know those those kind of elements we're seeing at play again in uh, in the talisman and not in a sort of greatest hit sensibility but in a like these are clearly pressure points for him as a storyteller that he returns to because they're they're great wells of exploration for him
1: hmm. speedy parker in here is you're right. He's very much Dick Halloran, but like cosplaying is Gandalf, right? He's almost <laughs> the, the, he's the, he's the Gandalf character from the Hobbit. He sends him on the mission and occasionally pops up when he's needed, uh, you know, and knows more than he should, but like, won't tell him the, the protagonist exactly what they need to know. You know, it's, it's, it's a weird, uh. It, it's weird, and it's a, yeah, it's a little sloppy. I think it's a little. It felt a little sloppy in, in this one, the way that Speedy would just pop up not as himself, and you know, and certain forms, right. but like clearly, right. like winking that that it's him. I, I didn't buy that as much, like Bugs Bunny in a disguise, <laughs> right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
0: what do you make of? Um, well, Brian, you haven't re- you haven't read Black House.
1: I have not read Black
2: House at all, and you know. Uh, it came out in 2001 and I think I was in the middle of stuff that yeah. I wasn't <laughs> as, as, as consuming, uh, uh of, of books lo- that I was in, in years before. So I, I, miss, I missed it entirely and was, I was like, what's blackout when yeah, you totally mentioned. Fine.
0: Well, black house catches up with Jack Sawyer about, I don't know, 20 some odd years later. Uh, he's a cop out in LA, and he eventually moves out to it's Wisconsin, I believe, where he gets embroiled in a case involving a serial killer that is uh, based on Albert Fish. I don't know if you know who Albert Fish is. I imagine someone like yourself does, but <laughs> uh, a very uh, a serial killer possessed of some very gruesome methodologies. That book makes all the sort of glancing references and connective tissue to the dark tower explicit the back half of black house. And it's been some years since I've read it. My memory of it is that it becomes essentially a dark tower spinoff in the, in, right. you know, before it's all said and done.
2: Isn't speedy a gunslinger and, yeah. uh, yeah. in the territories.
0: Yes. And that's, that's one of those glancing reference things where you could sort of write it off maybe one way or another, I was, I was inclined to question it when I first read this book because uh, Peter Straub was involved. And I'm thinking, this is a collaboration. Why would Peter Straub be interested in propping up this other fucking project that, that King is doing? But then again, maybe that's one of the sections King wrote. Which is a, you know, just as a side note here, that's a, a question a lot of people have about this book is how it was actually written. And it, it turns out that... Stephen King and Peter Straub hatched this idea while absolutely shit face drunk one night in, <laughs> uh, in, uh, in London, like Peter, Peter, I, I've read like three or four different tellings of the story from Peter Straub. And they it always includes a mention of, and so our wives went to bed and we were drinking an enormous amount of beer. And Stephen said, Hey, let's write a book together. And and that's, that's how it started. <laughs> they agreed to revisit the idea a, a a few years into the future when their schedules would allow for it, and they did they they were both living back in the states at that point. you know that initial conversation happened when King and his family lived in London for a, a few months. They broke the back of the story you know they they wrote out a, a detailed treatment and and figured it out and so then what they did was like they they sat down at a computer together and wrote the first say fifty pages. Or some such thing, and then,
1: like, while they're in the same room, Is that yes,
0: well, yeah, okay. like at the okay. same the same terminal, and then right. they were using a newfangled technology known as a modem to shift chunks of the book back and forth at each other, and they would just pick up where the other person left off, and both of them were trying to imitate the style of one another, hmm. and those chunks were about a hundred pages in length. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, for anyone trying to dissect this book and like figure out, you know, which line is Kings, which line is Straubs, like it's we're never gonna know. You know, they're they're both imitating one another. It's it's mm-hmm. a true collaboration and we don't know what order the the chunks occurred in. And I that's true. I honestly cannot tell when I read this to me it just reads like King you know mm. so <laughs> that means either that I should be some, more some sections. reading more Peter Straub or that Peter Straub <laughs> is exceptionally good at imitating King um mm. anyway that's just the the interesting side note there
1: I would bet I would bet money Stephen King wrote the uh, the the Jack in the Shed Wolf stuff I, I Straub's a, a great writer but that to me is like I'm so confident in in it. I'd bet 20 bucks put $20 of my own cash money on that. That was, that that was part of King's section.
0: I think I only ever picked up one other straw book and couldn't get into it. Do you have any recommendations? Me? Uh, Yeah. You or
1: Brian?
2: uh, I, 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 I haven't read any. The only straw book I have read is, is the talisman. (laughs)
1: <laughs> uh I tried to read ghost story and I think uh, that of boun- bounced off of it yeah. uh, and then there was another book that I did read of his but I don't remember much of it it's called Coco I think
0: Yeah my mom had that when I was a yeah. kid and I thought it was about the gorilla there was like a talking <laughs> yeah, gorilla too. around that era Yeah Yeah, I think, yeah, I was reading that
1: around the same time I was reading Congo. I was in my gorilla phase. Um, No, I, uh, but yeah, no, I'm I'm woefully under read on on Straub as well, so.
0: What is Coco about?
1: I couldn't tell you, man. Like, I I read it. (laughs) I know I read it, and and it was a big-ass fucking book, but uh, (laughs) like, I don't, I remember reading Relic around that time, you know, and I could tell you about Relic, but I don't know. I couldn't tell you, man. It's
0: uh, Wait, the Relic, the one they turned into a movie with Tom Sizemore? Yeah. That's a yeah, Peter yeah. Straub book?
1: No, 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 no. no I was gonna I, say. I, it was around the same time that I was reading, like, like trying to branch out of Stephen. Because I, I read a lot of Stephen King, obviously, and uh, Michael Crichton. Like, I read a shit ton of Crichton. Yeah, uh, yeah, around yeah, that. yeah. And, me too. And I tried to read a bunch of Peter Benchley because I love Jaws the movie so much. And I read, like, three or four Benchley books. I'm like, each one of these is fucking awful. <laughs> it's so yeah, bad. I, Even I could, Jaws, especially Jaws. You yeah, know, it's I like, could
0: never get into Benchley. And yeah. um, what's his name? Fucking who else were you just talking about? Uh, oh, Michael Crichton. Crichton. Crichton's Sphere is the first book I ever read in one sitting. I fucking love Sphere. Ah, Sphere was so, so great. And, and the good, book dude. Congo oh, is so Lord.
1: fucking addicting too.
0: I, I, yeah, I, so. I my, my, my mom got me Sphere from the library or something. And I remember sitting down to read it that night and staying up all fucking night. And I read the whole book. And, like, coming down wild-eyed in the morning, like, I've been up all night, <laughs> and I read that whole book. Like, I love that fucking book. And then they made it into an utterly horrible movie, like, I don't know, <laughs> ten years later. Barry Levinson. Sure
2: Stone, Queen Latifah.
0: Mm-hmm. Dustin Hoffman. It's, uh-huh. It, man, what a fucking whiff that movie was. But we're way <laughs> off track here. Yeah. Um, Sphere, though. Good book. Definitely Sphere, seek that great out. Great book. Yeah, yeah.
1: Crichton, I can vouch for Straub. I've I've bounced off of the the two books that I've I've tried to read that weren't Talisman. So I uh, maybe as an adult I can go back and, and have a little bit more patience with
0: it, and and I probably should. Yeah. Well, to my well, original point, how do you feel about how do you feel about this this series like tying itself so directly into the Dark Tower in the long run? Like, do you wish? And I guess this is mostly a question for Eric because hmm. Brian hasn't read it. But like, are you cool with that, or do you wish they it makes had, sense. kept them separate?
1: No, no. I mean, I, I like them being connected, um, in a way, I, although like in terms of feel talisman feels uh, the territories feel way more like eyes of the dragon mm-hmm. fantasy than it does uh, totally. dark tower fantasy. Uh, but eyes of the dragon fantasy is tied directly to dark tower. So, mm-hmm. uh, so I mean, they, they all work together, uh, black house, like, I don't really remember it. And I've, I've said this on the podcast a couple of times, like that, that was a book that went in one ear and out the other. The only thing I very specifically remember, about reading it when it came out was how disappointed I was that they they did that thing that I've always fucking hate, where they have, it, it where they take away the the protagonist remembering their powers. Yes. So I was so excited that there was a sequel to the Talisman, and I'm like, grown up Jack Sawyer, great. How is this all gonna fit together? And they do that thing where he's just like, oh, I was a kid, I imagined all that shit, and I'm just like, the fuck is this? <laughs> it takes. And I remember it took him like like 150 200 pages for him to go, oh, maybe I didn't imagine that shit. Mm-hmm. And and I remember, so my primary memory of that book is just being frustrated at it. Like I didn't, e- I remember clocking the Dark Tower references because this was at the time where, you know, post-accident King, he was getting back into mm-hmm. the Dark Tower world, mm-hmm. finishing everything off. Everything was directly related. Hearts in Atlantis, you know, had a direct relation to the Dark Tower. So I remember it just being like, yes, of course, this is going to have a Dark Tower tie. Hmm. So that's one I, I'm sure we'll revisit. Some guests will will pick it. And I'll, I'll give it a, a really fair shake. And it has its fans. But I remember at the time just being extremely frustrated just by the mere setup of it. Because mm. the idea of Jack Sawyer growing up to be a fucking detective hunting a serial killer is fucking rad as hell, you know, uh, especially if, if that, you know, that requires him to uh you know, flip into the territories to help solve the crime. You know, like that that Mm -hmm. is a really fucking badass idea. And I just remember being frustrated with how they approached it. Hmm. I've never read it. (laughs) (laughs) Next. Well what was interesting. Well we've given
0: it a sterling recommendation. So I'm (laughs) I'm sure you'll be on that shortly. But I didn't (laughs) like it either.
2: You know, one of the things that I, I I find very apparent in the the writing style of uh the talisman is that you know and hearing that they were both trying to recreate each other's voices or approximate Mm -hmm. them makes a lot of sense because you say that it feels distinctively king where I, i i was reading it going like i like i can't tell who's writing what because mm-hmm. it doesn't feel entirely King. Like King wow. has a a strange sort of colloquial specificity of, of his writing that I didn't really pick up in this uh, as mm-hmm. much, you know, and, and having just, you know, poured through Christine line by line by line and, and Salem's lot before that there is an interesting, uh, simultaneous, uh, vulgarity. It's a vulgar al- apple pie, you know, uh, uh, that's Stephen King's narrative style when he's just doing Stephen King. That this didn't feel, um, as distinctive as King's other writing. Yeah. And, and I was reading it going like, I'm not. You know, like the, the Will Darnell's death in Christine mm. is some of the best Stephen King writing that I've read and is filled with such movement and energy that this, it I felt like a, a writing collaboration where mm. some hard edges of, of King were sort of smoothed down a little bit in the process.
1: I feel that. I I, I feel that uh, very much. Um, And especially on this reread, I didn't pick up as much on this when I was a kid. As a kid, I was just like, "Yep, these are things I recognize from that Stephen King uses, and I love Stephen King." Um, and I just kind of went with it, and I was invested in in Jack's journey. You know, I mean, that's, you At the end of the day, when you're a kid and you're reading this and you give a shit about the kid that you're that is your eyes and ears inside the story, then you, you can go with whatever. But reading it as an adult, there there's some really bizarre things that happen. And I, I texted Wampler actually while I was rereading it, going, "Uh, you know, there's a whole whole ass sequence on a train." here. Here that is filled with Uzis that the fucking kids just <laughs> blow away wave after wave of werewolves. It's like on a this video game. Train. And I was just like, I, how fucking weird is it that that is the least Stephen Kingy thing <laughs> in, you know, in the world. Uh, it, th- but there's just this, this whole sequence where they're getting close to their destination, which is very dark towery, by the way, mm-hmm. you know, where this kid gets on a train that takes him the vast distance, you know, essentially, uh, for, for the last the blasted uh, part of the lands are basically
0: the wastelands
1: <clears throat> yeah, in the blasted lands and the wastelands. Exactly. They're there. They, they're twinners of each other. Hmm. Um, and we find out that this train is carrying stuff for Mor- Morgan Sloat, who we haven't really talked about yet, who is the, the main heavy of the book. Uh, that just happens to be huge amounts of fucking weapons, including Uzis. And they just like it turns into a, a fucking Clint Eastwood World War Two movie you know, here where there's just waves upon waves of animal people and werewolves and shit that are attacking this train and Jack and his, uh, his buddy, Richard Sloat, the, uh, the son of the main bad guy uh, are just fucking blowing away all these fucking animal people, you know, manimals they are blowing away. Manimals uh, that are, that are attacking <laughs>
0: animals. <Yes.
1: Animorphs. laughs> Animorphs that are attacking the train and it reads like the most YA shit possible. Mm. Um, it, it feels more like a Stephanie Meyer you know moment. Something that would happen in a weird fucking like Twilight spinoff than it would happen in a mm. in a Stephen King story and it was like the most random thing where I, le- I legit because I, I revisited via audiobook and I legit rewound the thing like 30 minutes to go i must have missed something because i feel like this just came out of the fucking blue and nope it's it's just
0: (laughs) just the next step of the story speaking of morgan slope i'd like to talk about this gentleman for a moment first of all how great is that fucking name morgan (laughs) is the best
1: bad guy name yeah it's so fucking good can't get it right
2: and uh mispronounces it with everything that rhymes with sloat. He's like, go, float,
0: (laughs) float. (laughs) I'm picturing like Bob Hoskins in a big, bushy mustache. Sweat rings under his arm. You know.
1: uh, Know who's in my mind and has been since I was 12 or 13 whenever I was when I read this? Mm. Is Michael Ironside. That is Mm. Michael Ironside in his prime if I've ever fucking read it.
0: I'm picturing him a, a little more stockier. But I I, mm. I see where your head is at. Yeah, he's pretty stocky. Let me look. I up mean, he's not he's
1: not that little square. You know, <laughs> I when you mentioned Bob Hoskins being so stocky, all I can think of is uh, is that scene where he's shirtless and Roger Rabbit.
0: Yeah, um, he looks like yeah, a barrel. So, uh, he looks like a flesh yeah, barrel cover, covered covered in hair. It.
1: But Morgan Sloat to me in my mind is always going to be like Total Recall era Michael Ironside. I can't see anybody else in it. That's because fair.
2: I mean, he's uh, it's an interesting character. The fairy tale elements are are really apparent with, with Richard, and they seem to be having... Mm-hmm. Uh, or not with Richard, but with, with Sloat. Uh, yeah. They seem to be well, having a lot of fun with these uh, paradigms of this guy. Because he's he's friend of dad's who is the bad guy who may have killed mm-hmm. dad and definitely killed uh, you know Uncle Tommy and... Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's this
0: um palace intrigue going on in a sky. Yeah. Paper.
2: And it's a- ever- like, it, like yeah. it, it feels like it's segueing into uh godfather territory mm-hmm. of, of of the complicated relationships and the power struggles that that's one of the another reason why I love this book is that it is it is a mashup of so many different genres <laughs> right. within this fantasy genre and it's like taking an alice in wonderland journey but you're related to the queen of hearts in some way that's the part that felt like freewheeling in a not free willy but freewheeling (laughs) and uh in a fun way that this character clearly had archetypes that were influencing uh how they how they structured the narrative around
0: Mm-hmm. Morgan Slope feels to me like a carbon copy of uh, Jake Chambers, father from the Dark Tower. Right, right. You know, they're, they're both these like overworked executive types. You know, there's a whiff of cocaine about them, uh, yeah. a whiff of a drinking problem. You know, they're they're guys that would be working in like if you've seen Scrooge with Bill Murray, they'd be yep. executive sitting on that guy's board. That's who these mm. fucking dudes are. Um, right. And I love that. I, I love that uh, King returns to that trope twice. It's a very specific trope. You don't see it much uh, anymore, I don't think, but uh, certainly a thing that was on his mind back when this was written. And um, Lily Sawyer is another another character we've not talked about a lot. She is, mm-hmm. you know, in this world the queen of the bees, uh, being bee movies, and then in the other the other world being an actual queen. <clears throat> um, you touched on this earlier, Eric, but I, I've always thought of Lily Sawyer as sort of like like if Spielberg invented Courtney Love. You know, like, <laughs> like that's how I'm imagining huh. the character. She's a little softened, but she's still a fucking train wreck. You know, sorry, mm. Courtney, please don't sue me. Um, <laughs> and I do love her. I, I do love that character. And I think it's very interesting that You know, shortly after this was written, you know, we get sort of an epilogue to Lily's story and Jack's story in the Tommyknockers of all fucking books in the Tommyknockers, which was written like three years later. Guard or Jim, Jim Gardner, uh, the main character of the Tommyknockers or one Mm. of the two main characters encounters Jack at this Alhambra Hotel uh, out on uh, uh, what is it called? Arcadia Beach. Hmm. Anyway, he, he encounters Jack and Jack uh, reveals during that conversation that his mother died in a car crash, presumably driven by her alcoholism after the events of the talisman. And I think that's such a fucking, it's such an interesting, (laughs) yeah, yeah, it's such an interesting twist to have thrown into this thing, right? Like all this bullshit that Jack goes through to save Lily is completely undone within a page Of the Tommyknockers of all things, (laughs) you know, like isn't that an interesting choice? That even Mm -hmm. though he did this, and even though he saved the other world, and blah 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 blah, he also like couldn't beat her alcoholism in the end.
2: It feels grounded in a Mm -hmm. way that you can you can save somebody, but you know, from all of these fantastical elements, but you can't save them from themselves.
0: Mm -hmm. Eric, do you have anything
1: to add here? (laughs) Yeah, I I feel like it's cheap to be honest um <laughs> it, it, it's uh i don't need there to be like and happily ever after like i'm totally cool with with dark endings and and holy shit that wasn't the actual point of this and i'm just now realizing it wasn't the point of of uh blowing up the death star and we win and we're happy like it, that doesn't that's not how the world works I think it's it's fine if he had writ if that had been the sequel in the sequel of the book but just to kind of have it as a th- that'd be like in 112263 fucking uh <laughs> you know, know where fucking, you're going already you know fucking uh what's his nuts the James Franco main guy and that uh fucking goes back visits Derry and they just go oh yeah you he finds Richie and Bev and they go oh yeah we just fucking killed Ben <laughs> You're, you know, bent yeah. out of. Got hit by a car. They all exploded or shortly yeah. after the event. After of we another defeated book, Pennywise, you were in. It's like, well, what the the, the fuck? No, I mean, it, sure, but like, actually tell that story. You know, the idea behind it, absolutely, it's fine because it's it's about this journey is about Jack more than it's about his mom. Mm-hmm. And you know, at, at the end, and that's that's fine. But you know, just to do it as a throwaway thing in one of King's worst novels, not a fan. Can't say I'm a fan of that.
0: Fair enough. I think I, I think I lean closer to that. Although I, I do think it's just super interesting that he twists that knife a little bit, you right. know, for
1: mean,
2: it's mean,
0: it is mean. It's mean, but also maybe he wasn't feeling charitable toward the fans because this book was not received. Well, it got savaged mm. by the, the literary crowd. King said he got the worst reviews of his career for this book, which is kind of hard wow, to they- imagine now. Right. Um, but they clap back on Eyes of the Dragon hardcore too. Yeah, sure. yeah,
1: that's that's crazy. Yeah, that's, so I if mean, he's saying that about this just, one,
0: it must have been real bad. I tried to find, I tried to dig up some of those wildly negative reviews that mm-hmm. he's referring to, and I, I couldn't, I couldn't really find anything. But um, I'm, sh- I'm sure he wasn't just talking out of his ass. He'd, uh, there'd be no huh. benefit for that. I think that you know this was still in a, a period in his career where he wasn't being taken en- entirely seriously. There were really? people. Y- no, I think that up until um, I'll say early mid nineties, before people started coming around on on King. You know, he spent fucking years telling people that I'm the literary equivalent of a Big Mac and fries. You know, which I I, I don't agree with. But yeah. that was certainly the, the way that critics looked at him. You know, he was looked at as this sort of like schlockmeister kid populist. Yes. Like playing around in someone else's sandbox. And it's only we, we forget that it's it's only been in these last, you know, 10, maybe 15 years that he's been recognized as such a powerful force in American literature. It
1: feels like that turn came around when people realized that he wrote the Shawshank Redemption, like the original story behind it. Like, yeah, maybe. I, I I know that that uh, you know Stand By Me predates that, and you know different seasons and whatnot. But for the world as a whole, it, it the line in my mind, whether it's true or not, my my view of it is that that's kind of when people went oh, and, it, and that also happened to coincide within a couple of years of him almost almost dying right? And mm-hmm. and I, I think that maybe it'd be it more, is that he we almost lost him, and the world took a moment to go, oh, I don't like what the world looks like without Stephen King.
0: I also and, think it's a generational yeah. thing, too, in terms of the critics, true. right? You know, like oh, imagine God, imagine when he first comes onto the scene, and you've got literary critics who are essentially like that time and place's version of like fucking Jeff Wells. These crusty <laughs> old fucking dingbats that you know, haven't been relevant in years and, you know, they're still imposing their moral codes and, you know, uh, snobbery upon, you know, the new person coming to the stage. And then those people fucking die out. Dinosaurs go away eventually. And then a new generation rises. And now what you're seeing now from critics is almost like universally positive responses to everything he writes. And I think that's, you know, part and parcel of this. I think this is now people that grew up reading King are now the people writing the reviews and they have the context for it. And they have you know, they they've seen what he's capable of.
2: Well, I mean, it's, it's so interesting because as you were talking, I was like, I guess I just I didn't give a shit what critics said when I <laughs> was in the middle of uh you know in the eighties and nineties. No, of course not. Why would you?
0: You're you're a kid at that age, basically, you know? So for me,
2: King was always lauded in in some way as a a great storyteller. I, I never sort of got the perception that he wasn't respected because my friends like parents who read, read him and we would have these conversations about the the wonderful qualities of his storytelling so like it it i was i was experiencing a bit of dysmorphia as you were talking about because i was like in the middle of the 80s it was like king was king there was something so amazing about all of these movies were coming out about his books and everybody said the the movies were never as good as the books. So it kind of propped up him sure. as a <laughs> mainstay in a time when we were seeing how those stories in less competent hands were just not going to be as strong or as in- involving. And I, I get your reference to the Shawshank Redemption being kind of a turning point for respectability, but also would, I, I mean, because we had Stand By Me, because Carrie was such a huge kind of pop culture phenomenon, the same with The Shining, even though it wasn't a hit, it was certainly talked about. And I think Stand By Me was probably the first time that somebody said that, you know, King, somebody has adapted King's work unequivocally great. Uh, execution. And so maybe that was the first time that I thought the movies were catching up with the, mm-hmm. uh, the currency that the novels and the short stories had always had for me. And certainly going into to misery and Dolores Claiborne and those films that were really <laughs> attracting higher profile directors and cast members that maybe I can see the shift in the nineties, but I never saw that as a reflection of the, the source material as much as it was the adaptation
1: one side of it that we haven't really discussed is that the reason why it's stuff like stand by me and Shawshank on a, on a popular uh, pop culture perspective, we're talking about, uh, obviously as readers, we, you know, we knew different seasons and we, you know, we, we read those, those stories and knew he had it in him but like on a, on a broader scale, those weren't horror stories. They weren't horror adjacent, right? They, They were a sweet coming of age story or, you know, a prison drama. There there's been, forever a stigma for people in genre as as being lesser than uh in more serious dramatic uh stuff so i i think that that's a big part of it a lot a big part of it is in the 80s there was a big especially on a critical level there was a a turn against um uh, populism you know Spielberg was kind of shit on and in view mm-hmm. you like oh yeah well his stuff sells tickets but you know it's not real cinema he's no david lean you know it's like that's you, that was kind of the thing and yet you know, and that's totally changed well not totally there's still there's still those those uh you know criterion snobs out there but uh you know for for the most part you know populism is way more embraced now than, than it was and it's not an automatic mm-hmm. uh negative if something is is uh, successful
0: that's the thing that's really what we are t- talking about here, like like Brian is not incorrect. But what we're really the root of this conversation is the difference between popularity slash financial success and critical success and respect. And while you're completely right that King was selling out movie screenings and and selling a fuckload of books back in the 80s, the evidence shows that critics and especially stodgy critics were not on his side. People Magazine, who I would not... Uh, listen to about fucking anything. They they called The Talisman one of the, the worst books of that year that it came out. Really? Yes. You know, talk about populism. Like, wh- what's more uh, populist than People Magazine? You know, <laughs> right. they print that in their pages. It's pretty rough. You know, Stephen King mm. spent the first 20 years or so of his career, I think, not getting the respect he deserved. Yeah. That's really the point I'm making. He was making right. fuck tons of money and mm-hmm. and good for him. But I I just don't think that I don't think during that period and certainly not when he wrote this was he, you know, embraced in the same way that he is today.
1: Right. And to Brian's point, he was getting the respect from his readers and, and, you know, anybody who was enjoying his books, reading his books, you know, the moms and dads that were reading it and passing it along, you know, in those bubbles, those were, you know, Stephen King was was untouchable. But there's also this thing you have to consider is that he at this, especially at this point, people love putting up. You know, people on pedestals and knocking them off. They love it, mm-hmm. love it, love it. And he was kind of at the height of his king shit powers here. You know, every book was an automatic uh, fucking bestseller right. that has his name on it. So people are love looking and finding those people and in, in, uh you know bruising them, then giving them a black eye and 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 you know, trying to humble them, I guess, in a weird way. So at least critics and 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 maybe not so much audiences. That does happen there too, but. Uh, For King, I I do feel like that there was this whole, like, okay, now we got to jump on him, kind of like the way the uh, Critic Savage 1941 for Spielberg. Mm -hmm. When you watch that movie, yes, it's a train wreck. It is a fascinating and highly entertaining movie, though. It it is if you called 1941 the worst movie that you've ever seen or the m- worst movie of that year, like motherfucker, there's probably not even the worst movie that came out that month. Like yeah. there's at least something going on there. It's wanting you to have fun. It doesn't, it may not work. It may not work the way it's intended to. It may be uh, a bit up its own ass and you know, uh, but not in an arty farty way. It's just more of an indulgent, you know, filmmaker being indulgent. The movie opens with, with uh, Spielberg fucking spoofing one of his own movies, right. you know, it, it opens with a Jaws spoof the beginning of that movie. It is, it is a weird movie and it's a, it's a fun movie, but critics treated it like it was a fucking Ed Wood movie. And, and I think a lot of it is because here's this, you know, wonderkind that showed up and delivered, you know, changed the way the industry worked with his his first, you know, a uh, uh, white theatrical movie, uh, and then like followed it up with a huge close encounters thing, and then you know, whenever he dared to be indulgent and not, there hit hit it a home run or whatever, um, you know, they took that as the excuse that they needed to to knock him off his pedestal.
2: I
0: still enjoyed it because. <laughs> 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 me too. I, I, I'm a fan of yeah, Night of course. Yeah. Brian, what do you make of the similarities between Spielberg and King? Can you draw any lines there? Do you do you- well,
2: I I think you've 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 kind of nailed it that there is a, an Americana accessibility to both of their works that is broad enough for many people from different backgrounds to see themselves in these mm-hmm. stories. And mm-hmm. so that universality of of horror and wonder are there's, there's a, a Venn diagram with a very fat middle uh, with how they cross mm-hmm. over. And I think that they're, I think it's an easy comparison to make between the two. Right.
0: of them. Fair. Yeah. Fair. Now
1: they're also really great at character. Like I, I'd like to to point that out is that mm-hmm. there's, the the strength that for King to me is always in his character work, and when Spielberg is on top, it, it let's ignore his his uh, what he does visually, right? Because that's a whole other conversation. That he he is as masterful uh, as a storyteller t- visually as King is a storyteller with his words. But they do both do something really interesting when they're at their best, in that they make really believable. Uh, people even indiana jones you look at that first raiders of the lost ark indy is fallible he makes mistakes he's he fucks up all the time he loses you know almost almost every fight (laughs) that he gets into he he's losing until he fucking figures out a way out of it you beat him up he you know, it's that uh John McClane thing like John McClane was way more interesting when he was uh you know a barefoot balding you know guy that was having to to figure figure shit out on the fly and uh and cu- overcoming that adversity than in the later films where he was just a, a a bland action star spielberg and king are the 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 two daddies you know for everybody that grew up in, in, in my age range like i I, the more people i connect with we always have the same thing that they feel like they were raised by both king and spielberg Mm -hmm. so
2: they're two great tastes that taste a lot of
1: and and we've never really tasted them together hopefully the talisman will uh will be the 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 time even if he's not directing you know for real i'm sure there'll there'll be a an amblin influence at the very least on, on that show
0: and speaking of which brian what do you think a talisman series needs to do in order to be a successful adaptation of this book
2: well i i think they need to stay true to the source material and you know there's you, you hear certain adaptations of of king's work that are that are coming out that uh, you hear are not faithful adaptations and if you don't believe in the source material enough to dedicate yourself to telling the, the most iconic aspects of it well, you're you're probably the wrong person to adapt it. Mm-hmm. So I I want to see the uh, the Gardener School sequence desperately, mm. uh, you know, and I and I think that there's a lot of really amazing opportunities for Jack to be a, a signature King hero. So it's it, it's hard to say without seeing a script uh, about what they're they're doing or what they're not doing, but I, I think it's about really staying true to the emotional story uh, of Jack and his adventure and his relationship w- with Wolf. Like for me, it's a bu- so much of it is a buddy series between Jack and Wolf, and you can't right. underuse Wolf as a character. And I I would advise in you know introducing him earlier rather than later.
1: I almost wish, and this kind of ties into what we're talking about. Uh, I almost wish that Wolf was his companion throughout the whole thing because Richard yeah. Sloat is such a fucking drip. Yeah. He really is. Fucking nerds. Yeah, he's his friend. He's in this boarding school. That sequence is fucking great, though, that where he's kind of locked away and the, the school has been like slowly becoming evil around like the walls and shit are turning and they're, they're stuck in this empty school again with the Harry Potter comparisons. It's like if they fucking Hogwarts was empty and, and turning evil and Dementors were outside, like taunting, taunting them the whole time. It's but, like,
2: but Richard is a little Draco Malfoy. Like there is, there's, you know, he's mm. the son of somebody evil and who's, who's not quite as evil and trying to find his own way in his story. But absolutely. Uh, Wolf is a much more interesting character. And You know, the longer he's in the story, the more invested in the story I will be. But I also wouldn't
1: want to give up his sacrifice, you know, because I think that that's that's kind of that gives meaning to the to the sunlight gardener home sequence and uh, all the
0: horror that happens. Maybe you restructure it because I'm you know, I'm thinking about Mick Garris's adaptation of desperation and how Hmm. the whole thing kind of. It doesn't completely fall apart, but it loses a massive chunk of its charm. The second Ron Perlman is out of the picture, Hmm. you know, and and Wolf would would serve a a similar function here. That's going to be the audience favorite character. Hands down. Right. you know? And I
2: would love to see werewolf versus werewolves. Like,
0: right. then,
2: yes, you can have the whole gardener sequence. If I was taking any sort of liberties with the story, I would move uh, Wolf's death into the you know the taking of of the castle with when yeah. they're battling werewolves. So you have, and it's also a great. Uh, way to dig deeper into Wolf's character because you don't attack the herd. So he is put in a position to defend a non-Werewolf member of the herd by battling other werewolves. Mm, right? yes. It feels like there's there's a a missed opportunity for a much more complicated, less binary heroism uh, because everybody, like, it's so clear in the Gardner School, who's the good guys, who's the bad guys, right. and there's no other choice but to protect and save Jack at all costs, but if he's facing other werewolves and he has these packed dynamics, that's a more interesting extrapolation of his right. sacrifice. I, I, like, if if we're breaking story and we're putting ideas up on the board, that's, that's something that uh, mm. I, I think you could stretch him out a little bit more and have you know save his death for later in the story
0: i agree you kill wolf off halfway through this thing and bring in richard slope of all people to fucking (laughs) you know play the surrogate role it's i think that's a misstep
1: and i love what you're saying about the
0: the thematic potential of having him right you know die in that that final siege versus you know before the blasted lands
1: it also makes sense because we get kind of uh, uh one of Wolf's like uh brothers, right? That that pops up after right. the quest right. is done that that Usher takes him back home. So you you kinda get this this uh Death, it means something, but then you also can, you know, not be crazy sad at the end because you have a guy who's not quite Wolf, but, you know, represents everything that was good about Wolf.
2: And when the werewolves disband, they their their disbanding isn't necessarily, uh, it sort of feels like a plot machination as opposed to a character machination. And bringing Wolf into that that part of the story and into the climax of, of the the series gives werewolves motivations. It gives wolf motivations. And I think it would also give, uh, you know, losing wolf in closer proximity to saving Lily is, is the right sort of bittersweet pineapple on your pizza type of thing Mm -hmm. that I think would work for, uh, for me as an audience member.
1: It also, I mean, you touched on something here. Of course, you did because you're a fucking brilliant storyteller. But what I love about that idea, and now I'm going to be pissed if they don't do this. right? If they're not listening and they steal it, and they Thanks don't steal Brian. this idea. Steal but it, they, steal it. as you said, the 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 bad werewolves here at the end are just one dimensional villains. Yeah. The, and they're just things to be there to be scary, and uh, yeah, that's it. There, there is no character there. But if you give them. A reason if you somehow get Wolf to convince them, you know, or remind them of of what their their goal of protecting the herd, you know, and that they're on the wrong side, and a sacrifice of him protecting the herd at that moment is what takes that army that Morgan Sloat has that and hasn't turned him uh, turn him away, where they walk away from the battle. That means something. Yes, you know mm-hmm. because yes. you know like that. That to me is so much more rich than than just having fucking Richard Sloat sitting in a in a fetal position. You know, hol- holding his hands over his ears and going, "None of this is real" for fucking five episodes. So, you know, right. yeah, I was
0: a big fan. Of this I, I, I thought it was yeah. a downgrade from Wolf. Yeah, you heard it here first, Duffer Brothers. Bring in the King Cast <laughs> plus also Brian Fuller into your writers' room. We will figure this shit out for you. <laughs>
1: Yeah, Brian, we we're going to uh, take the seats, but we are going to call you and steal all your ideas. That's what we're buying as
2: long as it's well executed.
1: <laughs> that we can't promise, but we will steal your ideas. <laughs> yeah. um, is there anything else that we should bring up on Talisman before we wrap this up? Do we want to talk at all about about the actual house itself or do or do we think this has gone on long enough?
2: You mean the, the like the hotel? Or yeah,
1: the- yeah, yeah.
0: The hotel where where it's kept. I don't the, I don't really have anything to add to that. I, it's cool. It's
2: interesting the I think the one of the things that I love about parallel reality stories whether mm. it's like mirror mirror and star trek or alice in wonderland there is this literal escapism that the protagonists are allowed in order to leave their world behind and find a greater sense of self and a greater sense of adventure in a fantasy realm that I think is endlessly attractive for audiences and readers uh, of of these kinds of stories. And, you know, whether it's, it's, you know, because he takes some sort of drug to get to the territories there, like invites, you know comparisons between alice in wonderland and and certainly there are all sorts of theories with magic mushrooms and the mycoverse of you know the the realms that you go to under the influence of of psilocybin or you know, God forbid the, the more dangerous, uh, what is it? Uh, it's, uh, animus there's, there's, there's the good mushrooms that sort of like go blue and that's the psilocybin. And then mm-hmm. there's Amanita muscaria, which is the, you know, the white ones with the red dots that are sort of like famous in, in Alice in Wonderland, right. but it, it does invite this, speculation on what is real and what is fantasy Mm -hmm. uh and and what i love about you know some of these theories about taking mushrooms and and the worlds that you access or the states of self that you access with the influence of you know some kind of drug enhancement i thought that was something that is suggested but also very you know it seemed like they were very considerate of their audience being younger people because of the protagonist being Mm -hmm. a younger character that they didn't want to double down on the drug taking as a vehicle to take you to places that you can't get with a sober mind. Mm -hmm. And I think we're discovering a lot of things, you know, with, with people like Paul Stamets, who's like the world's foremost mycelium expert of, of the kinds of worlds that we can go to real and imagined with the help of, uh, a, a little, a little, uh, push by Hmm. you know some sort of fluid and i wish that was one of the things that i wish they got deeper into in terms of the source of the juice that speedy gives jack in order to flip back and forth between the worlds until he learns how to do it naturally that was uh i would like to dig deeper on and understand a little bit more where Hmm. that bile came from and Hmm. how it 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 teaches your body how to flip into these states of mind that are really about chasing higher levels of Hmm. uh, enlightenment in some ways. And uh, that was something that I I was, you know, knowing now what I know about magic mushrooms and, you know, the, the places that they can take you. That I, I couldn't help but look at the uh, the, the fluid in the and the in the little bottle that Speedy gives Jack, and want to know more about that to just create a tighter web of reality into the bouncing back and forth hmm. between worlds because. There's, there, like I wonder if Jordan Peele read the Talisman when mm. he, and was he influenced by that with us and you know the sense of dualities and twinners and mm. and taking that into more of a a horror narrative than certainly what really? we have in the phantasmagorical uh, execution of the Talisman story, but the the twin worlds is always a a great place to take characters because they can see, you know, there, but for the grace of God, sort of narrative streaks that that would have happened to me if I would have made that choice. And, you know, with, with Jack and being the twinner that flips between the worlds because his twinner died uh, early on there, it felt like there was um, that they, they weren't trying to double down on, on that as as a wonderland kind of comp. Because they were creating their own story, Hmm. but, you know, with Dark Tower, with us, with Alice in Wonderland, with the Mirror Universe and Star Trek, it's a great, rich way to explore character dynamics because they get to see versions of themselves or versions of their world that allow them to think about their experiences from a completely different angle and therefore grow.
0: With all of that said, are you pro-Mushrooms?
2: Yes, absolutely. Um I've taken them twice and I did too much both times <laughs> and um, like so it was it was one of those What did you do where, when
0: you took them? What were you doing?
2: Uh one was sort of like a group of friends on my birthday. Mm-hmm. I think it was like my 29th birthday. We did mushrooms and it was fun for a while and then it was not and I had a horrible headache the next day. And the second time I took even more because <laughs> I was like, these don't work. And they've been in my freezer for a long time. So maybe they
0: lost.
2: The power it. <laughs> so like we sprinkled them on ice cream and we tried that. And then we made tea and then we tried that. And then we put them in another dish because they they weren't
0: cooking in. <laughs> and way overdoing and, it.
2: And way overdid it. And I had this EMU, this life-size fo Schwartz emo next to the tree <laughs> that would shed its its feathers and then fly around the room and i turned myself into homer simpson and so there was a lot of
1: uh did you just of- say homo simpson
2: Ho- well yeah I, I said Homer, but <laughs> homo is the better is the better <laughs> line it's always better in the free <laughs> way uh, but I remember I was brushing my teeth and the the flesh of my hand vibrated off uh, and I could see the muscle tissue and then the skin that grew back was yellow and then I looked in the mirror and I was a Simpsons character <laughs> and then slowly became Homer Simpson just by pushing it with my mind And, uh, knowing what we know now in terms of, you know, the berserker traditions of the Vikings. And like, if you were, uh, taking the bad mushroom that it it recreates these sort of repetitive actions. And that could be one of the, like, why you want to take the psilocybin and and not the other ones (laughs) is that you can get these weird, uh repetitive uh motions and that's what they would give to Vikings. They would give them this brew of the bad mushrooms, right. uh the the, the Amanita Mascaria. And that's why they were such efficient killers because they would get stuck into these repetitive actions of stabbing and they would just go through a battlefield stabbing and not feeling pain and were magnificent warriors. So there's all sorts of like wonderful history of altered consciousness taking you into fantastic realms uh that i kind of wish there was a little more that they were being probably a little more uh honest with their drug savviness Mm -hmm. uh in this like Mm. you know frank herbert and dune he was it's all about mushrooms It's all about taking shrooms and becoming one with the world and connected and your, you know, your blue eyes, meaning that you, you have more spice in your system. And also if you take mushrooms, uh, you know, one of the theories is that you, because mushrooms are all about fundamentally connectivity Mm -hmm. and, into a you know a field that's fine five miles wide you're on one corner and the mushrooms on the furthest corner from you will know that you stepped onto the field because that's how connected fungi is as a species and we are we come from fungi so we're uh, literal fun guys to be around and that's why penicillin doesn't work on fungal infections because fungal infections are too much like how our body operates. So there's a great mythology around mushrooms that have been informing storytelling and parallel universes and, you know, journeying to wonderful wonderland places that I, I kind of wanted uh, King and Straub to be a little, They were, they were a little simplistic with the, the, the vial of juice that, that takes you there. And I thought like I wanted somebody to break it down on a mycelium level of comprehension Mm. of what it takes to transform your mind into making your mind accessible to other places. Because the thing that I think is the most, is the coolest. And forgive me if I just said this, but when you take mushrooms, you become part mushroom you're like the reason you have all these feelings of connection and humanity is that you're the mushrooms are trying to get your brain to do what mushrooms drew which is find connections and and i think taking it back to the talisman there is a connectedness to Jack Sawyer's journey that is all about connecting to his true self, as well as connecting to Mm. a greater world and becoming a hero. And that is fundamentally how mushrooms work.
0: Agreed. Hmm. So are you prepared right now to commit that if I come visit LA, you and I can maybe take some shrooms together? If I set all this up and watch, I don't know, Maximum Overdrive?
2: Well, I would be fine to doing maximum overdrive. but I also suggest, like, let, you know, let's go to the beach or go on a hike or go oh, on something going to give baby, us. We're
0: definitely going to the beach. That's like step <laughs> one. A group of friends of mine, we rented a very nice Airbnb out on a lake this summer and went out there. A lot of shrooms going on at this place. And we we got very sunburned as a result of the time warp that takes place. Uh, we did not realize we were outside that long, but then we ended the day watching a, a jackass 2 and you know shit like that and it's the most <laughs> relaxing fucking day i had all goddamn year you know even though it's you know your your brain is a little bit on fire it's just um, well, you're creatively energized. Have, you feel, you feel that connection. I know exactly what you're talking about. It's so fucking good.
2: You'll, you'll have to help me manage dosage because I've done it twice <laughs> and I fucked it up both times.
0: I got you, baby. So, Don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. I got so you. I, like, I,
2: you know, limit me in some, some capacity. Yeah, but no more you,
0: making tea and then making scones or whatever the fuck else you were making. were <laughs> <a little laughs> like,
2: three distinct dishes. No, of absolute,
0: like, no, 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 no.
2: Mushrooms and scrambled eggs, mushrooms on ice cream, mushrooms and tea. And I, like, it was like somebody
0: stopped me. You did a four course fucking meal. No wonder. (laughs) 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 No wonder you had a bad time. That that would transform you into Homo Simpson. I can imagine that being. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it was, I,
2: it was it was dark days. But
1: yeah. uh, I've, I've, uh, ne- I've never I've never done I've never done shrooms uh, at all. But uh, I would do shrooms with uh, Scott and Brian. Uh, it's
0: the it, yeah, it's, it's like, the good shit, son. It's it's, it's, it's all story, about moderation. That's the that's that's all it is. You know, you got to know what you're doing. Yes,
2: I, I need help with
0: that. Well, and, I am a uh, licensed medical professional. I can I can help <laughs> you in that regard. There's there's no problem with that. We're uh, we're
1: gonna fucking get arrested. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, Brian, thank you so much for being, for coming back. We're so excited for Christine. Is there anything you want to mm. add about that before we wrap up?
2: Uh, you know, pl- please watch and support and and hopefully. <laughs> see <what
0: they're> <laughs> yes. Um, well, we're rooting for it. Can't wait to see it. And thank you for being here to, to finally uh, crack the, the talisman with us. This is our first time talking about it at length on the show. And we uh, was everything i could have hoped for and more
2: yeah it's 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 a wonderful story that encourages experimentation with psilocybin
0: yes, yes. i think that's the takeaway <laughs> we, can we can should all have here on yes yes.
2: yes.
1: <laughs> can
0: we get a new sponsor <laughs> exactly. up in this motherfucker well, yes they're,
2: like, they're, like somebody gave me uh, a bottle of pills that are like take one if you want a microdose take three if you want to trip.
0: what are the pills
2: they're they're it's like mushrooms in a little capsule.
0: Mushroom pills? God, fucking California yeah. has the coolest shit, dude. We don't even have <laughs> yeah. we, we don't even have legal weed down here yet. It's it's the Le- fucking smuggled
2: from Canada.
0: Oh. Like they
2: were like so uh, somebody gave them to me because they bought them in Canada.
1: And and uh, uh j- and just for any uh, law enforcement listening to this right now, you don't currently have that in your position. You only saw it.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, no, it, 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 it's upstairs under the TV. I
0: don't, I don't i don't have it on my person aaron sorkin is <laughs> <and> holding on <onto laughs> uh,
1: i'm yes i'm trying to help I'm you out here like brian that. ixnay on the ownership of the bills <laughs>
0: uh, well I, all right. thank you again for being here we we have kept you long enough uh this was great yes. and, uh, and
1: and we've missed these long conversations and yes. we we hope to have you back before you for something else before you uh jump full on and uh, whatever your next project maybe christine or otherwise
2: well, thank you, gentlemen. It's always a joy to to talk. And, and thank you, uh, humble listener.
1: Many thanks to the one, the only, the legend, Mr. Brian Fuller. Always a blast talking to that guy. It's been way too long, and I'm so happy that we finally squeezed in a nice, juicy, long-ass Brian Fuller episode oh, uh, yeah. before the year 2021 comes to a close.
0: Absolutely. Always a pleasure to talk to uh, KingCast's official Gunkle. Uh, always has interesting <laughs> things to tell us, and um, you know he's he's looking at this material from uh, from a position that I think neither one of us could possibly achieve. And I love hearing about that shit. Mm. And also, I was just really happy to talk about the talisman. We've, we've yeah. kind of mentioned it in passing a few times on the show, but this is the first time we actually get to sit down and kind of dig into it. I feel like we barely scratched the surface <laughs> of it too. Like you could do. <laughs> We'll probably end up doing a few more on that one if anyone else has the nerve to read that 900-page novel and bring it to the show.
1: Always happy to talk about young Master Sawyer and his adventures.
0: And not for nothing, but uh, we're talking about another King novel that we have not talked about on the show before next week. Mm. And it's also one that I know you and I both have have very... Strong memories about from our childhoods. Yes.
1: Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. And there's a lot of parallels actually between this book and uh, the talisman. And we actually talked about it in this episode. You want to go ahead and tell
0: the people what they're in for next week? We are ending the year with another one of our big Dark Tower episodes. So far, we have we've been kind of going at it scattershot. Damian Eccles came in and did The Gunslinger. Matt Fraction came in and did Drawing of the Three. And Scott Ian came in for uh, a discussion about Wizard and Glass, which is book four. Well, just in the interest of keeping everything tidy, we're going with the Wastelands. This will mean the first, basically, the first half of the Dark Tower series will be done. Other episodes about the books will uh, be rolling out over the duration of this show, however long it goes on for. But um, we we are both huge Wastelands nerds, and mm-hmm. uh, we have we have a guest. We we think you'll be very excited about for this episode. I kind of don't I think wanna... we should just go
1: ahead and tell him, right? Should we? Yeah. I think it. we should.
0: It's the holidays. It's, it's a giving Christmas, experience. yes. Go, go, you do the honors.
1: Mr. Matt Fraction did Drawing of the Three for us, and that was such a great chat. If you don't know why that's great, it's because he is reading The Dark Tower for the first time, mm-hmm. going through, and doesn't know the end yet. He hasn't gotten to the end.
0: Correct. and
1: And so we love that with the Drawing of the Three, so we're like, drawing of the three is so connected, like deeply, deeply connected to the wastelands that it only made sense to bring Matt fraction back. And you know, Matt fraction, he is uh, an award-winning comic book uh, writer. He's responsible for that run of Hawkeye that the Disney plus shows based on great guy. And he came back uh, after having finished the wastelands. And we talk a lot about it.
0: That is right. Another supersized episode coming at you next week. Um, and we're, we're really excited to get that out there. If you love Matt Fraction on Drawing the Three, you are going to extra love Matt Fraction mm-hmm. on the Wastelands. Make no mistake.
1: Yeah, we're we're trying our best to just like corner him into experiencing the Dark Tower <laughs> with us and sharing his instant thoughts. Like, yeah. You know, the, it, it, <laughs> yeah. It's, as a dark tower nerd it's always great to usher other people through even in a kind of a weird backwards way that we're trying to do here mm-hmm. uh, through this magical series especially this first this first half of the of the series is, is kind of flawless so so we got that next week and as far as our patreon bonus this Friday we kind of have a special one for you who who, who we didn't discuss beforehand who, who do you want to uh uh drop this big bombshell on everybody you want the honors you should have the honors I think <clears throat>
0: I'll take it. Um you do it. Those of you who have joined the Patreon recently know that we've spent the last few months focusing more on doing commentaries that have people somehow associated with the movie on the track with us. You know, up until now we we had done a lot of riff style commentaries which tended to lean toward uh, maybe the lesser Stephen King titles, the idea being that those would be uh, very fun to listen to. And we we hope they have been. But these commentaries we've been doing with filmmakers have been particularly exciting. And Eric and I are really determined to keep this going. So this Friday on the KingCast Patreon, we are doing a Gerald's Game commentary. And we got Mike Flanagan to come back for it. And he brought Carla Gugino with him. So mm-hmm. you're going to get a feature length commentary of Gerald's Game. With the director and the star of that movie this Friday on the Patreon. In order to get that, you'll have to sign up for our ten dollar tier. We think it'll be well worth your time. And then if you do sign up, you know, we've got a you got a ton of other commentaries and bonus episodes to listen to. There are literally dozens and dozens and dozens of hours worth of content over there for you to pour over if you're not already signed up.
1: Streamers like Netflix don't really prioritize any of these behind the scenes kind of things. I mean, mean, hell, I don't think Gerald's Game's even out on like a DVD or blu-ray. right? It's still just... Yeah, I don't think so. Just screening uh, only via their streaming service. And uh, so, yeah, no, you have people like Mike and like uh, Carla who like really are proud of what they did and want to tell everybody how they made it and the thought process behind it. And uh, we're kind of filling that, that little void there. And I hope we can continue doing that because I'm, I'm having a ton of fun doing these.
0: Oh yeah. And this was, this is a really good one because once it got started, you and I barely had to do anything. Oh yeah. (laughs) yeah. We were just like listening to them talk for most of the duration. They're uh they were really hot to talk about this one.
1: It's also going to be the last time we see hide nor hair of Mike Flanagan for a long time because since he's about yeah. to dive into
0: Usher. And like the bazillion other projects he's working on.
1: <laughs> yeah, and the 17 other Netflix shows he has.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, so so get them, get them all you can, folks. And you can do that over on our Patreon. So go do that. We promise it's worth it.
0: Oh, and before we forget, you might want to keep your eyes peeled to the... Uh, the kingcast twitter account tomorrow that's uh thursday might be something surprising happening there uh you might also want to go ahead and just subscribe via iTunes now so you definitely don't miss it
1: yeah yeah definitely subscribe to your iTunes you might get a little present from Santa's Vespian Wobbler. on uh, yes. Thursday i don't know what that could be but it might be something fun it might be, i don't know who knows and
0: working around the clock and <laughs> and we we do have a we do have a little gift for our listeners
1: so make sure you're signed up on our Patreon to get all that goodness and uh, make sure you're getting your uh, notifications on whatever pod catcher of your choice is. You're going to want to see what you get on Thursday, I promise. Indeed. I think that's about it. I think it's time to go, Scott. Say goodbye to all the people. All right.
0: Adios, everyone. One more episode before the end of the year and then we were on till 2022. Two. Two, right? We're on two, two now? I hope so.
1: I hope to God we are.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Adios, everyone.
1: The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tierra Ansley and Abi Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director. And editing is done by yours truly.